it was also a big moment for being a part of uh, the change of learning that Ukraine can become a separate country and just being a part of the whole conversation. It was such a big explosion of ideas and uh, uh, opportunities to be involved in an actual change. In the Soviet Union, being involved in change, well, it was basically impossible. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today, I'm sharing the first half of my conversation with California-based illustrator Nina Khaschina. We talk about her childhood in Kharkiv, Ukraine, growing up in the former USSR, her lifelong journey with art, and how she documents her life with sketchbooks. We talk about why we both love to use brown paper in the autumn season, I learn about how to observe the little things of nature that give us a sense of time and place, a sense of season and geography. But we also talk about other things. In Sarah Bakewell's excellent book, At the Existentialist Cafe, there is a quote by an early existentialist philosopher that has stuck with me. Speaking about World War II, he says, War is the ultimate destruction of the individual. This episode is about Ukraine. Like every conversation about war, it is about war and not war. It is about large things like nations, cultures, and languages. And it is about little things like flowers and seeds and the neighbor's cat. It seems you need to address both. The little things and the big things, both war and not war, to understand what is conflict and what is suffering. Because we are talking about contemporary events, it's necessary for me to date this conversation. It was recorded mid-April. A lot of things have changed since then, and a lot of things have not. A final point, we are drawing and taking notes throughout this recording, so occasionally you will hear the scraping sounds of pencils and fountain pen nibs. Enjoy! So, uh, you know that the general format is, it's not, like, it's not strictly controlled. I have some ideas for what I want to talk about, but how we get into it and what we do when is not something I control from before. It just happens to go a certain way. And we take the conversation as it flows and we are free to talk about anything we like and go into any rabbit holes we like. Sounds good. I also have a question. Do you mind if I'll be drawing you while we talk? Actually, I encourage it. I was going to ask you if we should do that. Uh, Usually, sometimes uh, what we do is uh, some of my guests, I've done it at the end of the conversation that we draw each other. But if you like to draw while talking, I'm totally fine with that. It's something I've been doing with my parents in particular, and uh, I enjoy it. It, It's it's an interesting way of um, keeping certain emotions in check on one hand and also allowing one allowing a person to go into certain you know maybe longer thoughts 
because you you kind of keep switching you don't always look at the person you're talking to and and uh, you get to you know exercise your other uh, uh, parts of your brain while you're drawing and this allows some folks you know to to get deeper maybe longer or maybe just uh, into a different uh, rabbit hole if you said i i completely I love that thought and I agree with it. So yes, that's what we're going to do. Let me also grab my sketchbook and I will also do the Sounds same. Great. Uh, Sounds great. A lot of your, uh, like I looked at a lot of the sketches that you made because you've been drawing your parents regularly so many times, but the notes that you take around it, like I love the idea of taking notes in a conversation because I'm a very big note taker and I feel like I think better when i write things down as i hear them and i take notes it helps me like it's another level of processing the same thought when you write it down i completely agree and you you remember differently if you had a chance to write it and also it's a chance to not only write but also maybe draw something so i agree so uh, i'm using my uh, i'm using a gray sketchbook that i have mm -hmm. it's I am a little uh, not very comfortable with it yet. I'm still trying to figure out how to enhance the the power of the gray page. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not been so easy. I used a brown sketchbook before this and that was instant love. Like it just worked for me so quickly and I had never used a brown sketchbook before and I thought I wasted so many years not using brown paper. <laughs> But I have um, a thing with brown sketchbooks. I Uh, I it started at some point. I just saw a beautiful uh, sketchbook that I really wanted to paint in, uh, paint not draw but paint. It had a very smooth paper, and it looked like uh, you could see little um, little pieces of fabric. Although it was it was a very smooth paper, it, it was a beautiful sketchbook. I think I don't think they they keep uh, making them. Or maybe I couldn't find them, but that brown sketchbook became some became something that I go back to at least once a year. Once a year, I have this urge to have a brown sketchbook. It has to have brown paper. It can be this or that or this or that, but it has to be brown. Usually, it comes in fall, as I found out. I keep all my sketchbooks. You you probably can see them behind me, <laughs> but I'm on a, a 149 sketchbook and. Uh, I keep them, so I realized that every about October, uh, I have I have to have a brown sketchbook. <laughs> it's it's interesting to correlate that with a time of year. Like I wonder if it like what sparks the that nostalgia for it, or and plus it's nostalgia plus excitement to do it again. So Very I wonder if so. it has something to do with the weather, the change in weather. You think? It's hard to say because I live in California and uh, there are no, the the seasons are not as pronounced as uh, something I'm used to as a child on one hand. On the other hand, I think it has something to do with um, my interest in, in changing uh, certain materials that I'm working with. And this brown paper, originally I wanted to paint and then I realized that it's marvelous for drawing for uh, using ink with both pen and uh, um, brushes. Um, and I think I haven't found that quality of um, connection between the colors in, in I, I have white papers, I have off-white papers, I tried blue, I tried gray, but that brown just does something for me. Yeah, 
do you know what I've been thinking about brown paper? So I've been using it only since last October. Incidentally, also October, I started <laughs> a brown go. paper sketchbook, <laughs> and I just loved it. Before this, I was using only white paper, and I was using only my fountain pen and no colors, just black ink. I thought that the white paper is one end of the spectrum. It's just pure light, and every line that I make on it is pure dark. And so I can only go to degrees of darkness from pure white. But the brown paper is in the middle of the spectrum. And I can go towards darkness with my black ink or darker colors. But I can also go towards light if I use my Posca marker or if I use my jelly roll pen to do hatching. So it's this bi-directional power. Your 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 starting point is a little bit different. When I when I uh, talk to people who are just starting to work with gouache, which is a, a, a beautiful medium, and I think it's it's very accessible to all, but it, it there are some things that make people um, maybe afraid uh, of it sometimes. So when when people talk to me about what do you recommend for someone who is afraid of gouache or who is just starting and doesn't know how to. I always suggest that they start with stoned paper because uh, it allows them a completely uh, new approach to the whole painting process. They have this middle point where they can go this way or that way. Beauty of gouache is that you can keep changing your mind. You know, with watercolor, you paint it, that white paper is gone. Forget about it. Uh, but with gouache, you can change your mind and then you can change it again and then again. So if you're starting in the middle, you can you have more options and you can just just have a little bit different trajectory of your painting, which yeah. I think, you know, is important thing to have, you know, especially if you're starting and you're trying to find your way. Yeah, I, I like that is so true. Like uh, using white, I'm so nervous to use any colors because I'm not uh, naturally confident with colors. I don't feel, I feel like I don't understand how colors work against each other instinctively. But uh, brown paper, because it already has a tone, it's made it easier for me to try sepia ink and to try a little bit of red, a little bit of white against that red and to play. It's just, it's almost as if the first step is already taken. So I just have to take the second and third. Yeah, I noticed that you, you had uh, quite a few adventures with a little bit of color and I was wondering how it's going. And I think it's it's a very good idea yeah, to try a little bit different. And, it, you, you know, you also try another color. It sounds like like a, an interesting plan. Mm -hmm. You know what might be? It might be also a personal thing. Uh, you're also wearing glasses, so you're probably familiar with, with the, well, anyone knows about the dark glasses. But I uh, once tried um, glasses that were uh, turning uh, darker when I go outside. And uh, 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 there was an option for them to turn gray or to turn brown. And if you would ask me what is my, if you put two colors, if you say those words, there's so many grays and so many browns that it, you can't compare them. But if you would say just the word gray and brown, I would probably say gray would be closer to the color that I enjoy more. Mm -hmm. But when I put on the brown, the glasses that were turning more towards brown, it was just a, a happier feeling. <laughs> so it might be that the brown... The, the brownish paper just makes you feel a little bit, you know, a little bit more optimistic. I think so. So uh, before I forget completely, I have to do a formal introduction. All I, right. So we should do that. <laughs> uh, hello, Nina. Good morning and welcome morning. to the Sneaky Art Podcast. Good morning. 
Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I have been following your blog for uh, several months now. And I've been reading all the things you're doing and the communications you're having with your parents. And it's been so interesting to me because uh, your work seems like an exploration of curiosity more than any kind of loyalty to style or to uh, a strong suit. You know, like there's this tendency that especially now when we are supposed to professionalize ourselves as artists and illustrators, that once you find your niche, once you find the thing that people like, then double down on it and become that brand known for doing this thing. But when I see your art, I see this playfulness and I see this complete freedom to just do what you feel like doing. And this feels great to me to see. So in this hopefully long, hopefully winding conversation, I want to go into curiosities, where they come from, and how we live with them, how we express them, how they shape the directions that we end up going. So just to begin this story, because I don't know so much about your life, I want to ask you about growing up in Kharkiv, what that part of the world is like, what your world within it was like, because I have no images and no reference points for it. Uh, it's a, um, it's a wonderful question, but it's uh, it's so wide. Uh, I'm not even sure how we can, um, where we should start. Um, I um, I was born in uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, in the city of Kharkiv, and at that moment it was part of the USSR. Um, and uh, I grew up there and uh, I uh, moved to the United States and after I finished my higher education. So I spent there uh, quite a few years. Um, my, um, I think the, the best way to try and uh, uh, talk about the whole idea of uh, understanding that world would be by telling you a little bit of a story of my education and how how I grew up. Um, it's impossible because it's impossible to explain the whole country and and uh, everything that happens, uh, everything that happened then, everything that happened since then. But I think from if if we'll just you know follow my path, it might it might be. <laughs> A proper approach. Um, um, I grew up in a complicated, uh, large family. My uh, parents are scientists, um, and uh, uh, I have a whole bunch of brothers, and uh, um, everyone took a different uh, path in life. Um, my um, first memories are connected to drawing and uh, to playing with, with my parents and my brothers. I started drawing with uh, a group of people when I was about four and a half years old. Uh, my uh, parents took me to um, a place which was called a palace for pioneers. I wasn't a pioneer at the moment. I wasn't old enough to be a pioneer and you have to go through certain steps in order to have the um, honor in air quotes. But um, I uh, was adamant that I should be uh, drawing with these kids because they were doing interesting stuff. And uh, my parents were, were always amazingly supportive and also they gave me a lot of freedom. So when their four and a half year old kid told them that I have to draw with them, with these other kids, 
they just took me there and and uh, I met a, a first artist um, in my life. He's uh, he became uh, a huge influence um, in a very interesting way. Um, he was a teacher more than he was an artist in my head. I haven't realized that he was an actual artist uh, up until I, I was much older. But uh, um, his name was uh, um, Edmund Gutowski. And uh, he taught a whole bunch of kids in this palace um, for pioneers. Um, lots of kids I know went to draw with him. Uh, he had a very interesting understanding of how kids should be taught. He wouldn't show you any art by any other artist. He thought that if you would see the art that other people produce, it would give a lot of influence, especially on, on a young child. So his approach was to show pictures, you know, take kids outside, show them nature, show them pictures of nature maybe, and talk to them, but never ever show them any pieces of art from any period or anything like that. I I haven't seen his paintings maybe for 10 or 12 years. So I, I worked next to the artist who was also drawing at the same time as me, but I never saw what he was making. Um, and I had lots of fun uh, working with all sorts of uh, paints. It was a very uh, painting experience, not a graphical experience. Um, and um, because this was the place where um, kids were able to have access and to learn all kinds of um, sides of art in this palace for pioneers. I tried, I also tried as I was growing up, I tried woodworking, I tried uh, working with glass, making mosaics, making murals, not the huge ones, but still something on the wall. Um, we we worked with clay a lot. Uh, we worked with um, painting on all kinds of surfaces, like in wood and, and making little sculptures and then making out of those sculptures, making little like theater presentations. And so it was a very um, multifaceted um, kind of art world where there were lots of kids who were making art and very few adults who were telling them do like that. So I think it, it allowed me uh, a lot of uh, um, growing space. Uh, it also presented me with, with interesting opportunities because um, uh, my teacher, uh, his teacher was, was a, um, a well-known um, artist in the um, USSR. He was a in, in the USSR, there was a system where there were ranks of artists. If you were approved by the um, party and by the system, you had certain rank in this rank of artists. So he was one of the highest ranking artists in, in the country, which meant in a very practical terms that he was allowed to paint uh, pictures of Vladimir Lenin. Um, before that, you were not allowed. Before that, you were allowed to paint lower ranks in the party. But anyways, he was, he was a very interesting artist. Uh, he lived in Moscow and my teacher in Kharkiv, in uh, Kharkiv, Ukraine, uh, who was uh, exchanging uh, letters with him, he suggested that uh, 
uh, we meet and uh, my parents took me to see this um, person. His name was Serafim Pavlovsky. And I spent a few years going there and working in his uh, uh, real huge uh, artist studio in, in Moscow. And uh, just talking about art, he was extremely interested in making new colors and mixing new colors and how colors work with each other. He was um, making large uh, murals and um, uh, he, that's what he was well known for, but he was also a very interesting theoretician. So he was writing books. I'm not sure whether they were published or not. Uh, again, I was a kid at that moment. I was maybe 10 years old. Uh, so I wasn't interested in a book or science as much as uh, um, an adult who is ready to talk to me about an art in, in a very real way, you know, without condescending, without, you know, asking stupid questions that some adults asked. And uh, so that was one opportunity that, that I was uh, presented. And uh, um, there was another very interesting experience where my parents uh, took some of my works and uh, they were submitting them to different uh, places, um, to publishing houses and um, within the USSR. And to, they sent some of my works to um, uh, a television studio also in Moscow, um, where there was uh, um, like a, a TV show, which was called, you can translate it as uh, Pinocchio's art studio. So uh, there, was, there was very little TV and there were very little programming for kids. So you imagine you had one programming for uh, an evening kind of going to bed story. And there was once a week, there was one longer story. And then also once a week, there was half an hour when an artist would invite kid artists and show their works and talk to them about art. And uh, that was an amazing experience. He was, he was the, an amazing um, illustrator of kids' books. And he was another adult who knew how to talk to kids and just be very real, still support their art. But, you know, it's, um, it's an amazing thing now that I, that I remember, that I think about it. He, he was very, very supportive in, in a very subtle way. Um, he also showed me uh, some animation studios and, uh, um, it was uh, it was just opening windows around me to different worlds of how art can how people and art live in the same world and how they talk to each other um i also worked with a whole bunch of um um teachers in kharkiv kharkiv is very interesting city because it has lots of um university institutions and uh the no, the percentage of students in that city is so high that um, it's an extremely young uh, city, and it's the the people keep changing very often. You know, for about some cities, people say that you cannot you can be only born into that city. There is no way you can become like a true I don't know. Let's say New Yorker. You can only be born there. Although I think you can become a New Yorker, uh, but um, for for Kharkiv, it was uh, kind of a joke that uh, you can become 
one with that city within half a year to a year because of because of so much new people keep coming and it always keeps changing yet there are certain things that always um always stay um we um we had uh very interesting um places where we would go paint plein air and uh uh, I would have experience working with uh, people, with students who were uh, in studying in the um, uh, Kharkiv Institute of uh, Graphic Arts. Um, there is a whole school of beautiful artists that came out of Kharkiv. And um, the, the whole constellation of people that I worked with uh, in clay, in decorative clay, in, in making um, a little tapestries and working with glass and painting and uh, doing graphic design, liner cuts, wood cuts, woodworking. That whole constellation was amazingly interesting. And I'm not sure how that all fit into my life together with school and family, but somehow it, it worked. Unfortunately, at some point it started falling apart. Um, it was a very complex moment when the, the country was falling apart and, um, as a USSR, which uh, was uh, uh, simultaneously hard and very much uh, something that I wanted to happen and, and to be part of. I was uh, old enough to, to vote in the uh, elections where we had the um, chance to vote for Ukraine to become independent. We, uh, I participated in all sorts of political uh, life and discussions uh, but it was also a time when I was a teenager and I was looking for for a way forward and I stopped drawing at that moment completely um, I didn't draw for quite a few years I, I drew you know on the side on my shopping list you would see a little creature or maybe when I was talking to someone on the phone, I would draw something that I see next to my phone. But drawing was no longer, that, that constellation of things that I was doing, it kind of fell apart. Quite a few people uh, passed away and it was probably a, a major contributing moment. But also just that whole change in the country around me and being a teenager at that point, um, I think it created a situation when I um, gravitated towards other things and I, I completely stopped trying. Um, that's that's such a, uh, it's such a remarkable shift, like the, uh, how much art was a part of your life and then the decision to stop drawing, especially. So there are so many points over here that I'm curious about. Firstly, the fact that you were encouraged to pursue art in this manner, in this, uh, in this very... Uh, open-ended manner by your parents who were scientists. Secondly, the idea that something like this can exist. It occurs to me that a lot of young people making art without impressions of the world's art history or ideas of what famous artists do with materials and how they depict nature, for example, sort of finding your own way without having prior impressions, it feels impossible today because of just how much media is in our lives, how much screens are in our lives, how quickly we imbibe ideas and images from all over the world. It feels like such a seclusion is impossible to do. 
probably yes without a lot of work now that i think about it i my um i i've been thinking about the decision of my teacher to not show me any art and for many years i was upset with him about it he's he mm -hmm. passed away he was one of the people who who died and uh, my constellation fell apart so for many years when i would think about him i would think that now i would like to learn why he did that because I think it would be beneficial for me to see works of art. I think it wouldn't be a detriment to my uh, education. I could have grown in a different way, become mm -hmm. maybe more analytical about my art and um, a little bit more open to all kinds of other things. But now that I think about why, one of the reasons why he might have done that was that in the uh, USSR, the art that was available for people to see was much narrower than the actual art in the whole world. There was a lot of uh, um, government control and a government dictated um, ways of depicting things. There was a lot of um, what was called real proper art. So if he was not showing me any art, he would be able to avoid a situation when he would tell me, okay, this is the art that government wants me to, you know, to show to you. And this is a real art that I want to see. And this is just a complicated thing to, to, to talk about to a five, six year old. You have to go into all sorts. I mean, you just can't, you don't do that. So I think that might be now I just came up to that thought that maybe it's the reason why he did what he did. Um, it was also very, um, um, well, there's no other way to put it, but uh, the structure of the country was built so that the best artists would go to the capital. So if you wanted to have any sort of career, you would have to go to Moscow or St. Petersburg, which was Leningrad at that moment. If you wanted to have a best education for that, it was it was expected you would be able to get the proper ranking in the whole artist's world if you got education from that place. A lot of people, a lot of people in Ukraine in particular, opted out of that. Um, there is a, a huge amount of very interesting artists, graphic artists in particular, that I've, some of them I've, I've just discovered during the last year. People who opted out of that going the route of being accepted by the government and making more money and basically winning in this game right. of uh, being on top of uh, everything and uh, going into um, a different way of exploring the whole uh, art. It's um, well, it's, it's a separate topic, but it's also uh, quite an interesting one. I don't think that I was moving towards something at first, for sure. I think I was moving away. The world that I saw, the world of art, was, um, it looked to me um, like an unstable place. Um, and um, I just couldn't understand. The, the system where people would be able to find uh, work for them was falling apart. And I saw how many, many people, in all parts of life, many people struggled with the previous way of life. And I wanted to be a part of this new life. It was also a big 
moment for being a part of uh, the change of, of learning that um, Ukraine can become a separate country and, uh, uh, you know, just being a part of the whole conversation of uh, languages and, and uh, history and, and learning about all of that, it's, it, it's such a, it was such a big explosion of ideas and uh, uh, opportunities to be involved in an actual change. In the Soviet Union, being involved in change, well, it was basically impossible. In order to be a ch part of a change, you had to be a part of a system, and I knew that I never want to be a part of that system. It was something that was engraved in me from the very, very early age. And all of a sudden, this new system comes up, and, and people start building it, and it doesn't exist yet, but I can be a part of it. And it's exploding in, in all directions. And um, I think it was way more interesting at that moment, where the art world, it didn't sound like stable place from economical point of view and it's it was filled with people who are were struggling well everyone's struggling but they they were struggling where i was struggling as well mm -hmm. um i also the school that i went to i, I went to wonderful school where there was a, a math and physics uh, program and i was a part of that math and physics program and i was surrounded by wonderful friends who are still my friends um, I had great teachers, um, very interesting human beings and very good teachers who tried their best to support kids through this changing time, to give them some, some grounding, some, some ways of um, moving forward. And um, I ended up um, entering um, <laughs> a completely different world of uh, math and physics for a little bit as uh, a way to get away from arts and have a little bit more stable, uh, as I thought, world. I haven't survived. I, I uh, became uh, a student at the university. Uh, I uh, quit uh, after the first year. I haven't finished the first year because of various reasons. Uh, again, the whole world was changing around me. But... Um, I, I kind of had this brief moment of uh, math and physics, and then I moved to a different higher education or to one of the new um, institutions that was formed uh, in Kharkiv. Again, it's a city full of institutions, and even more are opening up as the country becomes uh, part of a new Ukraine and um, a different new world as, as the country tries to make itself into something new. And that was a very interesting also experience because um, I the education that I got there would probably be equal to um, uh, Masters of Business or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of floor, there was a lot of uh, um, economics, there was a lot of marketing, and I was concentrating on marketing. So it was it was a very not art education. But it was a very interesting place because um, people who organized this new um, educational institution, they they asked teachers from, not from one place, but from many, many places to come and teach. And they allowed them to teach something that they're interested in. So in, in the former education, the um, government controlled Basically, there was a program you had, the teachers had to follow that program quite a bit. Um, 
for all, on all levels of education. And experiment was such a rare and unique thing that if some teacher was doing some experimentation, uh, people would flock to, to get that <laughs> immediately. So I, I had this wonderful opportunity to be a student in a place where lots of teachers also came to teach an experimental course. Um, and at the same time, I started working as, as um, a graphic designer because um, computers were starting to appear first uh, a little bit and then more and more. And uh, it was um, what I started uh, being interested in and also learning uh, little by little. And uh, I'm doing graphic design up until today. Yeah, yeah. It's it's It sounds like such a time of... Uh, well, it is. it was a time of such great change and a lot of rejection of old ideas and old ideas of what it, you know, old ideas of who you are, but also old ideas of what life should be about and what somebody can do and should do with their life. So, uh, you know, at this phase, when you you first you decided to get an education in math and physics and then you changed to something else, it also feels like such a great uh, luck on your part to be in a place which is vibrant and changing yes it's um it's a wonderful um juxtaposition of great teachers lots of teachers very with very varied approaches um and you know the whole city of uh, two million people where a quarter of those people are students it's a it's a different um uh, kind of uh, it feels differently from the situation when you don't have that many young people from all over the world. There's mm -hmm. so many international students always were in Kharkiv. My mom, who is a was a teacher in university up until this year, she always had so many international students who would um, come. And uh, um, because of the, how education works, she would be very, uh, very much involved with them, not only um in a classroom, but also in their everyday lives, uh, and it—it's just—it it was a wonderful. It is a wonderful place up until now, because lots of uh, um, institutions still continue working even during mm -hmm. the war. Yeah, tell me, uh, like I'm curious about this environment of of your home, in which you've got two uh, parents who are scientists and uh, teaching, and there is this this attitude towards the natural world and towards education. And uh, also, when you're in these these years of your life, when you are choosing uh, what education you want to take, which education, you know, what, what, what kind of life it will lead to, and you're figuring out answers to these things about yourself, about what will make you as a person. You know, when I was 15, 16, 17, I had all these notions that the education you choose is going to define your work and like once you choose a path you are committed to that path so choosing another path or finding something different to do was a very radical thought it didn't occur to me at the time and i'm glad it occurred to me when it did but uh, what was the environment for you like um my mom is biochemist and my dad is a chemical physicist or physical chemist well he studied in chemistry, and then he's, he was very much interested in physics, and, and uh, he wrote uh, uh, some books about physics, and so he's, he's interested in both of those. Um, I, um, I think that um, 
my parents were very, they had lots of friends from all um, sorts of backgrounds. And uh, it was a very uh, open house. We had lots of uh, visitors always. Um, my, yeah, uh, my parents encouraged me to uh, be a part of an adult conversation since as long as I remember myself, I never was kind of sent to another room. So I was, I was exposed to all of that. Um, it's, um, it's a house filled with books. It's also a house filled with, uh, um, things that were handmade by family members. My dad built, uh, bookshelves all over the, uh, place. So two rooms are filled with the, um, bookshelves that also have hidden compartments and, uh, little windows, how you can see what's over there but not over here and these are covered with uh, little wooden panels that my mom did lots of wood burning on amazing very interesting scenes um some some are copies of, of artworks lots of her own creations and my brothers also participated in in building that and then in making these uh, um, wooden panels to cover the the bookshelves there was, uh, we painted on walls. It was very unusual. My grandma almost had a heart attack when I when she realized that my parents are going to paint on the walls. <laughs> cats and cats' footprints going all over and that there would be a spider made out of uh, my dad's shirt, I think. <laughs> um, and there was a spider net in one corner. One of the friends made that. Um, half of that is still there. <laughs> Um, we, there was a lot of experimentation and, and, uh, um, there was a lot of, um, just doing things for the joy of, uh, doing something together. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge part of a, um, wonderful thing that keeps us, uh, keeps us going, keeps us, uh, working together. Just, just, uh, this joy of getting together to make something. Uh, my grandmother was uh, making amazing uh, embroideries um, on, on shirts and on all sorts of things. And my great-grandmother was making crocheted. Um, they're kind of, you. my mom puts them on lamps for, but I think my great-grandmother just made them for fun without any like, um, she didn't have a purpose for it to become an actual piece of, um, you know, that, that people use. I think she just enjoyed making complicated, crocheted things. Today, I, I think she would be like a gorilla crocheter. You know, people who go and, and crochet all over the uh, a bench in the park. Or yeah, I yeah. think she would be one of those. <laughs> I'm quite sure. There is a there is a person in Vancouver who is a gorilla crocheter. They they crochet over all the bike stands. Here you go. She would be one of those. Yeah, she she could have like a super popular YouTube channel and like Here you go. <laughs> millions of viewers on TikTok. It's a totally different world now. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to show that to her and see how she would react to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh 
like this makes me also think now about uh, your decision to pursue graphic design uh, so when you decide, how did you how did you think about graphic design and was there like you know uh, you mentioned before like when in the soviet union if you wanted to be an artist there is this path that is laid out in front of you and a lot of standard professions also have those clear lines to follow in these early days when so much is unknown such a lot of the technology is completely changing transforming itself every few months not only software but also hardware and the areas of application are also a little unknown how did graphic design come into your sphere and uh, what did it mean to try to make a career out of it how did you think about it uh it came into my world basically by accident well it it, it wouldn't nothing is an accident in life but um my uh, i was lucky enough to have a computer which was a rare thing and i tried to uh find works that would allow me to have that as my advantage you know when you're trying to find jobs and one of the things you you have is a computer which maybe your um, you know employee employer doesn't have but it's all of a sudden you become an employee with a computer um so i tried doing different jobs typing up some things and and uh, doing all sorts you might have <laughs> all sorts of things that you might use computer for mm-hmm. but um uh, one of the works that uh, came up was uh, work at the newspaper doing a layout and uh, that's how i um, it was a well paid position uh, it was a freelance everything was a freelance but it was a well paid gig and uh, it was uh, something that i learned to do um and then i met some wonderful people who were really good at that and there was an opportunity to learn and you know where you you go where water takes you there was a way to learn i learned more so i was able to get better gigs and uh, uh, that's how i moved uh, to doing graphic design as as a permanent work also doing marketing and uh, um just all sorts of things around it yeah i worked in newspaper and and in in uh, um <laughs> It was it was a wild thing. First, first newspapers that were not um, government controlled newspapers were interesting. Mm-hmm. Was was there a sense of was there already a sense of what freelance life is? Was it something? Did you have any role models or people to emulate that this is what no. a freelance life should be? No, because in, in the people around me were people who lived their whole life in the Soviet Union, where you yeah. had a path. and uh, there was a road and you knew how you move from education to work to retirement and it was such um, a predictable thing to lose that for lots of people was was a extremely painful experience it was um very much unregulated and very uh, unexpected in many ways for someone who is uh, who grew up with the strict ideas but um you know with time a lot of uh, areas um found a way to to build their systems their rules and uh, it worked what can i say mm-hmm. i was and... able to work as a graphic designer and and in marketing in general in advertising um up until i left uh, ukraine yeah um 
tell me about this this moment how what precipitated leaving ukraine how did how did you find yourself in california well i moved to new york first because we have family there and um uh it's um moving across the country well moving across the world was was hard and then moving across the country was a little bit easier but still uh it's a it's a big move um i i wanted to be a part of the world and uh when opportunity presented itself it was uh, definitely something that uh, i just took and uh, california is is an amazing place if you're in computer world if you're interested in that uh, that was a place to go to yeah yeah so um there's a certain point at which you then i imagine started to sketch again where another art and sketchbooks came into your world outside of so graphic design is digital work and so much work is going digital um was this a period where you were somehow still tapped into your analog art practice or did it suddenly come back in one day and how, how would that happen whenever i speak on the show with people who are animators graphic designers i ask about this this relationship between analog tools and digital tools in their life because digital tools played a very important role in my life also there was a long time when i wanted to draw but obviously uh, i had this fear of the blank page and i didn't want to ruin any paper and so i uh, the mo- the first time that i got a drawing tablet which i could connect to my computer i was overjoyed that suddenly i can draw and throw colors on things and undo it but at a certain point i found myself a little uh, well my I, my understanding of my digital brushes was it seemed fake like i thought i only ever touch the apple pencil to the ipad screen so the tactile sensation is always the same no matter which tool i use and that led to picking up a watercolor brush and picking up a fountain pen and drawing on paper and then i just got so much joy from it that my digital practice fell away from me so tell me about this experience for you when you when you came back to analog tools how did that happen um it wasn't an overnight thing it was a very slowly creeping um of if i'm i'm um, obsessed with note taking uh and i keep lots of my notebooks and if uh when i flip through uh, certain periods i can see the percentage of drawing on a page compared to percentage of writing changes and i noticed at some point while i was working uh as a graphic designer in new york that more and more of my meeting notes and and uh, my uh, uh just um letters to people they would become more graphical i would have uh, more and more drawings and then it would become a letter where there is a huge drawing and then hello and goodbye <laughs> all the words uh, i i also keep uh, corresponding with a whole bunch of people and and with my parents for example they keep all those letters so when i when i went uh, recently back and and look at some of those there were some letters where literally there was like hello dear mom and dad and then there was a drawing and it was mm-hmm. obvious that i spent half an hour thinking about something and drawing and then i had a good day bye <laughs> <laughs> so that was a letter and um 
little by little uh, things started creeping back in. Um, I think in in when I was already in California, I um, moved to um, an idea that uh, maybe instead of having all these um, separate pieces of paper that then float and then I try to collect into something, maybe if I have a book. Uh, when I was when I was studying with with uh, different teachers in back in Kharkiv, Ukraine, I uh, kept sketchbooks. It was part of a practice, but it was a very um, those sketchbooks were quite narrow in their tasks. Mm-hmm. So I had a sketchbook to draw um, on a mar- in a market. My my teacher felt that I need to go and. Uh, be a, like an 11 year old kid who stands in the middle of a huge market surrounded by all sorts of adults you know raw meat here cow there I'm, it, it was wild but th- that was a sketchbook filled with the drawings done on location and only for that purpose there was an architectural drawing sketchbook there was uh, so i had sketchbooks before but they were very narrow in an idea and mm-hmm. i would not have them chronologically Mm-hmm. But because I'm, I'm, I noticed that my interest in note-taking is becoming more and more graphical, I thought maybe if I'll just keep them in a book and I got my first sketchbook. I haven't started uh, numbering my sketchbooks at that moment, but I, the idea of having a one place where I go, where I can not only, there's all this paper where I can draw, there's a space but there is also a way for me to go back and look at certain things. That was very interesting for me because it triggered something in my in my interest in documenting and uh, keeping notes. Because then I have I have a way to go back and forward and and compare things. And and uh, um, then after first sketchbook, there was another sketchbook, and then another and. Uh, and then I started numbering them when I realized how many I uh, I have. My kept them separate from my my digital life and drawing was separate from my analog for quite a long time, quite a long time. Um, it's a very interesting subject that you raised about um, using digital tools. Well, actually, trying to use to to make digital tools work as analog tools, whether whether how it works when you know how they're supposed to feel, how that brush, you know, resists your movement, how does it work, how does your finger feel when you push that paint on the page, whether you know that or not, how it affects the result. I think it does, but I think it's such a it's it's a world that has so many entrances into it that no matter which one you take, as long as you take it, mm-hmm. as long as you continue trying different things, it's, it doesn't matter. For you, it was the this um, the lowering of threshold and, and, you know, not caring about wasting paper or paint or anything, but starting to draw made you do that more. It's a win. Definitely. Um, one of the reasons why I, I never get myself a super fancy sketchbooks is because I have this, the super fancy paper makes me feel I have to make a masterpiece there. Yeah. So nothing yeah. less will ever, and nothing is ever masterpiece. Mm-hmm. 
So I never, I never, I have several wonderful sketchbooks that are still on the shelf and they will pro I'll probably give them to someone at some point. But mm -hmm. for me, it has, you know, the, the threshold, and we all have different entrances into this. Um, for someone, it's, um, you know, having a cheapest brush, the, the kids' art uh, tools. I, um, at some point, I worked um, uh, for quite some time teaching kids of all ages, but mostly little kids, teaching them art. And uh, kids don't have that... Um, uh, concept of how much this paint costs <laughs> or a brush or paint. it's it's not in their uh, radar and it's it's wonderful and beautiful and they can do all sorts of things but sometimes the dynamic of a parent who thinks oh that pencil is four bucks and my child just put it in you know just that that pencil sharpener and two-thirds of a pencil are gone and <laughs> <laughs> um, Whatever works for people to keep making things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. Like, um, so uh, like so, uh, there are there are two or three different things I want to go through. So I want to not forget something here. But uh, being, you know, firstly, I want like going backwards. Like children, like I love your point about how they how they are not concerned with the cost of the stationery or the paper. They are not even concerned actually with the result of their efforts. When a child finishes a drawing, they just take it out and then they start again with a new drawing. They don't spend time thinking about, does it look exactly like I wanted? Does it match what I was trying to draw? Is it good enough? How good does it look compared to my friend? Uh, and the curse of becoming an adult is that at some point you flip the switch and you become results oriented that I'm only going to do this if I know it will be a masterpiece. I'm only going to do this if I know that I'm good at it. And if I'm not good at it, it is not worth doing. So there is this uh, part of being an artist which involves flipping that switch back. Coming back to the subject of sketchbooks now, when you started picking them up, um, firstly, do you, uh, did you think of them as sketchbooks or were they working for you more as these kind of journals in which you record your life? Uh, and because I'm asking this because I'm trying to differentiate it from the sketchbooks you used as a child, which were thematic and fixed to different ideas. Like this is a sketchbook of architectural drawings. This is a sketchbook with observations from the market. And what does it change when you suddenly use one book for everything. Was it one book? Is it one sketchbook at a time for you then? Is it still one sketchbook at a time for you now? Um, it's, it was kind of complicated because the idea of having separate sketchbooks for separate things, when, you know, when it's something that you grew up with, it's very much embedded in the way how you think about the whole process. And, um, I uh, started my using my sketchbooks as a, a doodling kind of place. So it wasn't it wasn't even from observation. It was something that just happened to be on the page. My thought about how giraffe riding uh, a car and you know making a turn would look like, or just uh, anything. Then slowly, I started um, introducing some drawings from life. 
And the more I included those in my sketchbook, um, the more I saw a conflict, which I wasn't able to resolve for quite a long time. So my first sketchbooks were um, mostly drawings, mm -hmm. very little writing, uh, and they were doodles. And then gradually more and more of uh, drawing from life entered the scene. And those often I wanted to annotate, to, to have more information more than I drew, partially because I felt like I uh, my drawing didn't capture certain things. And then other things you can draw. I mean, the, the name of a person or something someone said uh, or some, how the smell completely enveloped you and, and, and then it connected you to something else. Those things you need to write down. So slowly more text and first more uh, drawing from life and then more text and then even more observational drawing and more notes uh, on nature. And um, at some point, my uh, drawing from my imagination almost completely disappeared from those sketchbooks. And it, mm -hmm. um, uh, but later, later I realized that I can combine them. I uh, came up with this idea of different practice for myself. So one of the things that, that I enjoy is I enjoy changing my uh, paper and changing my materials, changing my subjects. It's, it doesn't work with the strict uh, subject for the sketchbook and it doesn't work with one sketchbook. Mm -hmm. uh, but keeping multiple, it, it I realized that I started losing them and then I lost them, then I had 10 at the same time and it wasn't interesting for me it was interesting for me to have this chronological one of the key aspects for my sketchbooks is it being chronological mm -hmm. i can skip words i can skip drawing from life or i can skip drawing from imagination all of that can fall apart but for me it's really joyful to have it chronological and to keep it going to have that well, every day I add a little bit to that little pile of uh, memories in whatever way they come up. Maybe it's, I don't know, uh, the, my finger drawn or, or maybe um, just fingerprints that I put with the paint <laughs> that I was making a painting for, for a project or something. And with leftover paint, I left a fingerprint. Here you go. That's also part of my this documenting of my life in some drawn way. So I came up with this idea that I will be using whatever materials I would have. An important part of this is um, also my interest in uh, utilizing time in the best possible way and having having work and family and all sorts of obligations. Sometimes you don't have much time. So I realized that I will make a rule for myself that I will draw on whatever is available. If it's a receipt, paper napkin, envelope, anything, any paper, whatever materials I have with me, that's what I'm going to draw on. But I wanted to keep it. So I made a kind of a, a process for myself where almost every night, sometimes I skip a night, but then I do it on the next morning or the next night. I sit down, I gather all of these pieces of paper from different sketchbooks, from this and that, and then I put them together into my Sketchbook. And I've been doing that for a few years now, and it it finally allowed me to 
bring together the idea of having instead of multiple themed sketchbooks now everything is in one place and my words and and all my reflections and a lot of private stuff which i i just cover when i make my flip throughs i just cover those parts or um but everything lives under this one big roof in this one big sketchbook with layers and layers of flips and all sorts of papers and and crazy materials that i use yeah yeah i was thinking about this because uh i also have this uh compulsion to keep it chronological and uh if you if i don't keep it chronological then the risk is that i don't know how to number those sketchbooks uh is it the fifth sketchbook or is it the sixth sketchbook is it based on when i started it or when i finished it i i have sketchbook number 5 and one quarter three quarters and five and a half got switched into six and a half because of how long it ran <laughs> so <laughs> i relate very much to that it's too complicated one sketchbook one uh and i also liked this uh, evolution that you know first it started for you with doodling and drawing from imagination and then slowly it sort of melds into your observations itself the challenge that i have given myself is to consciously bring more words back into my sketchbooks because my first mode of creative expression has always been words it's been a very good thing to allow myself to do which is the topic i want to come to this idea of the things we permit ourselves to do and when you grow up with certain ideas of what is a sketchbook what is an artist what is what is a career and what it takes to allow yourself to redefine them despite years of being told that it is a certain way so what is what has it been like for you to you know growing up with these ideas of what is an artist what is the job of an artist what is the job of being the business of being an artist have there been instances in which you have had to break away from rules that were iron clad in your mind i'll backtrack just a little bit to mention something that i think might be very interesting for you to try in terms of um putting together words and uh, pictures uh you probably are familiar with an artist linda barry she wrote uh, several books and they talk through um the idea of being able to draw for people who think they cannot draw and uh, she also has a very interesting a way of bringing back drawing you are drawing from your life but from your memories so it's not exactly imagine you're not trying to imagine something that never happened you're 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 working with something that actually happened but you are accessing um a different part of your memory and you're trying to connect it to different places she has a very interesting um vocabulary that that she helps people to and develop like little exercises i think it would be a, a really cool um separate subject which we we'll, uh <laughs> we'll not going to right now um the the truth about your question is um uh, you see i grew up in a world where the word business had a, a very negative uh, connotation in the soviet union business was not something that anyone was doing so until that world fell apart there was a path for an artist but it was uh, it was no longer available by the time i started um 
my higher education and uh, it wasn't defined in some ways it was there was no structure the the new structures were being built mm -hmm. but there was no do this and you will get that nobody um had this um clear idea of what would happen if you would start calling yourself an artist and how you would grow and i think the world has changed so much during the last uh, 20 years in that sense that even today what is that what is that artists do how i mean the the definitions would be so wide and so varied and uh, some of those definitions appeared half a year ago and they will probably disappear in 6 months or maybe in a year um i don't think that i'm um I would be able to even follow all of those trends and, and ideas and, and everything. Um my I guess my approach was uh, making making things that that are in front of me, you know. Um and uh, that's it and, and trying to find joy in that. So there is no there was no big concept that I tried to that changed for me or there was no the, the concept that I grew up with as a kid it fell and fell apart and then disappeared so long ago but uh, everything that was that I saw since then it also kept changing and so there was never an easy answer as to what who artist is and what do they do yeah uh, yeah like so uh you studied math for a little while before you studied uh, you studied other things um i studied math and science and engineering for a very long time before i moved away and if you've ever been fascinated by anything even if it has fallen away from you there is a relic of it or an aspect of it still in your mind it influences you in either conscious knowable ways or in subconscious unknowable ways but everything adds up to make us the people that we are how we react what we find curiosity in so uh, i want to use a phrase from my most recent episode uh, that i released a couple of weeks ago um in this i spoke to a naturalist and educator in san francisco his name is john muir laws and mm -hmm. we were talking about nature journaling and uh, as a person whose life has not been deeply intertwined with nature i asked him how can i do nature journaling i don't know things like i can't identify trees i cannot identify flowers and i don't know what i'm looking at and he told me th uh, this technique that he follows uh, he called it uh, the three step process of i notice i wonder and it reminds me of so i notice this i wonder something about it and it reminds me of is a way to make connections with other aspects and other influences in your life and to bring these things together without even considering what the name of that plant or that flower is which family tree it belongs to etc etc these things are irrelevant to this process of nature journaling and to being curious about nature but uh, i want to parse the influences of your life because when you were young you were drawing in nature and even now you pick up <laughs> cones and fruit and leaves and objects found objects of nature let's call it and you're working with them and they are part of your curiosity so help me unpack this curiosity a little bit 
what are these things that make you curious? What are the things that catch your eye? And what do you wonder? And what do they remind you of? Um, I think what drawing does to me is it allows me to have a much more focused experience. Um, it's a little bit, if, if you compare how you drive through a landscape and you bike through a landscape or you walk through a landscape, you will notice different things. Uh, when I draw, and especially if I draw something from different, um, different points of view, or maybe I draw it today and tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, it allows me to slow down and have a really um, a personal experience with this something. My my parents, my mom in particular, always collected um, all sorts of um, nature objects whenever we traveled or even at home. The the house even has uh, several places. Their house even has several places where they would the most interesting seeds, like the the um, the antler that they found in in a forest while mushroom gathering and and like little bits of nature that really are fascinating to them because of some reasons that might be obvious and maybe very personal just remind them about something 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 so they 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 have these little exhibitions in, in their house and the, sometimes they periodically change them um it, it was part of the world where, that I lived in as a child, and it became a, my way of exploring the world when I moved across, when I changed the continents and I came to a world that was completely different, different trees, uh, different smells, everything is different. It was a way for me, um, I started, even before I started drawing again, I started collecting uh, little leaves and seeds and, and trying to, to learn a little bit more so I think it's um, it's both a way to notice something much better, to have an experience, a much slower and deeper experience, and also a way to learn. One of the people who was very influential for me when I started sketching uh, is um, Kathy Johnson. She wrote a whole bunch of books about nature journaling. And the very first one was, I think it was a Sierra's uh, Club Guide Sketchbooking Book sketching in nature, something like a sketchbooking in nature. The point being is it's basically a book about someone walking and noticing things in the wood and not necessarily saying this is the oak tree and here's the Latin name. No, no, no. It's not mm -hmm. like that. It's it's an oak tree that I walk by every week. So you have a personal connection. It's it's wonderful to to establish know connections to scientific names it's also very interesting but to have a very personal relationship with uh, something that you see something that you find it also is a way to teach yourself and to teach others with kids when I, when i drew with kids of any ages this is the way to connect because they always pick up um, stuff on the floor and uh, then they have a collection and you can share that collection with them. You picked up something for them. Also, a huge thing of this in this is gift giving. If you, if I find a beautiful leaf and I give it to you, it's um, I want to draw it and also you want to draw this. It, it also creates a connection between people. Um, 
So it's, uh, again, I, I am trying to come to this uh, from different perspectives. But I think the most important for me is uh, um, nature journaling is a way to have uh, a deeper, slower experience. My experience, personal experience. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I've lived in uh, a few different cities. And uh, growing up in India is a very dense, uh, human-packed urban experience. But uh, then I moved to the Netherlands, which has much fewer people. But also still, Europe is quite urban. Europe is not very wild. Not in most places. At least Western Europe is quite urban for the most part. Um, only when I came to... And then I was in Wisconsin. And of course, that was quite rural. And Chicago is a big city. But only when I came to Vancouver, and I'm now in the Pacific Northwest, did I actually... I was completely blown away by the nature around me. And I actually started to experience this thing that you're saying, just having a favorite tree. Like I've got a favorite tree. It's outside my window. <laughs> when I enter the park, Here you go. there it is. I see it in different seasons. I see it in different times of the year. And I, d I still don't know which tree it is. <laughs> but uh, I know that this is how it stands. There's a tree next to it, which is leaning away from it. And I've got this in my mind, an interpersonal dynamic between them that keeps them in this manner. And uh, there are, I'm surrounded by flowers and plants and all different kinds of trees that behave differently in different times of the year. Again, I'm from an evergreen part of the world, so I'm not used to trees having evolving characters according to the seasons. Um, I was reading this uh, yesterday. I walked past a bunch of uh, magnolias and I was reading also your blog and you spoke mm -hmm. about magnolia trees around you and you had a lot of paintings of magnolias and uh, you uh, what I was noticing was the the subject of this post was how nature and observation of nature as a way to tell that time has passed as a way to tell that a new season is coming or that the seasons are changing nature almost as a as a as a marker of what's happening around you i think the whole idea of um, days and weeks and months and years this is all uh, a relatively recent and very human um, thing to do but it's it's also quite artificial um if Seasons are going to be here, even if all of a sudden we would erase every single human being on this planet, they will continue going. Um, and it's, it's. Um, I think the very important thing for me personally is to have this um, a little bit of a um, different perspective, different way of looking at things. And uh, changing seasons it, to measure time is as interesting as... Um, changing even time during the day by looking at which flowers open when. You know, there is, uh, uh, I think it's in Uppsala, there is um, a garden that was planted uh, by Linnaeus, who created the whole system of identifying flowers and uh, plants by their flowers. So he created a little garden where, depending on which time of the day it is, different flowers open and then they close, and different flower opens and then closes. Um, I uh, I I haven't looked at um, 
the time in that way always, of course. But the longer I uh, uh, sketch, the longer I look at this, the more joy I find in noticing these little things about the time, how how one year is different from another, how one um, even the, the same plant or the same tree, how they change depending on what kind of year we're having. For example, this year we have some crazy amount of water in in uh, california and we have a super bloom and and everything is very different at the same time it's a very it's much colder spring and uh, magnolias are much later um last year i um i was painting and and drawing magnolias and and doing my magnolia runs i call them i have 15 minutes i'm going to jump on my bike get to that magnolia this magnolia there are certain magnolias in my neighborhood that i know and i'm going to make a quick sketch come back and then i can continue working that was my approach so i was doing all of that and i know that it happened before before war began and this year i i noticed how it's much 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 later and it's much more wider um much more uh, elongated kind of uh, season we still have some magnolias that are just starting to bloom right now where usually um the first magnolia bloom i find is on christmas mm -hmm. so and and by this time they they should be completely gone the truth is and maybe you don't know this about magnolia trees they actually quite a few species of magnolia trees continue blooming throughout the year mm -hmm. but they have such a dense foliage that you no longer can see the flowers i see so if you have any magnolia trees that you know of Try looking at them during summer when they look completely green and like all the flowers are gone. The flowers might be still there. Interesting. I I made this observation about some cherry blossom trees near me. Uh, so because uh, there is this tree right outside my home, which is a cherry blossom tree, and it it has uh, the cherry blossoms appear, then they shed, and then you have more cherry blossoms again, and then they shed, and like this, there are four cycles of cherry blossoms during mm -hmm. this this brief period march and april last year we had peak cherry blossom season at the end of march and this year it hasn't even arrived yet there are trees where the cherry blossoms have bloomed completely and then right next to it there is a tree where the buds are still there and they haven't bloomed at all yet and there are trees that are full of leaves and the right next to it there is a tree which is completely bare it's a very mixed season it's almost like spring is coming to certain trees and not to certain other trees and it's been very jarring to like you know you you don't have a full sense of spring there are these beautiful pictures of vancouver because vancouver has so much beautiful nature these streets where the trees are curving and mm -hmm. meeting at the top like a beautiful arch like a tunnel mm -hmm. yeah and a tunnel of green trees and uh, they are starting to shed leaves as well in the wind and then right next to it there will be a street with bare trees where the leaves have not even appeared yet so there is this complete like nature seems to be in complete confusion this spring and there's no directive to start to bloom so uh i feel like i want to i want to make some kind of chronological observation about this i was talking about cherry blossom because uh the first time i saw them last year over here outside my home i was curious to know what would happen to this tree afterwards like once the season is gone and for the rest of the year this cherry blossom tree is just like a tree with leaves and foliage and you don't see and you wouldn't even know it's a, like someone like me would not even know it's a cherry blossom tree because there's no sign to tell you how it's different from you know any other What's tree expect around in it. a tree yeah <laughs> it's it's very interesting i think um 
the world has um, changed quite a bit in the sense that there's so many um, plants that are now non-native to where you live or where I live. And uh, just like you and I are no longer where we were born, those plants are all over the place. And uh, it's um, it's very interesting to see how they adapt to different uh, weather conditions and different seasons. And, um, and then notice it year after year and see whether that changes, their adaptation changes with time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's um, actually a very beautiful point. I live right opposite this park known as Queen Elizabeth Park. And I was walking through it one day and I saw this tree and I stopped at it. And somebody walking past me, he stopped and he asked me what I'm doing. And I said, I think I'm going to draw this tree. And he asked me if I'm a botany student. And I said, no, I'm just an artist. I'm just curious about trees. And so he told me that this park is uh, so relevant to my life. Like this park is a collection of all the trees from different parts of the Commonwealth Empire, Mm -hmm. uh, the British Empire, the Commonwealth. And so there are trees from New Zealand and Australia and India and Nepal. And there are trees from Northern Europe and Eastern Europe and South America. So there are Chilean trees. There are Indian Himalayan spruce trees uh, next to... Yeah, in this in this same space. And there is a beautiful map that I was able to download onto my Google Maps so that every time I go into the park now, I have geotagged locations of all the trees around me. And I can know which tree it is if I'm curious to know that. But it's such a beautiful thing that somebody did. And I'm thinking about it because of what you said, like taking inspiration from a tree which does not belong to this part of the world but is now... Uh, It's got its roots here. It is enduring the seasons and it is flowering and it is withering and it is growing and it is surviving. Very much so. I enjoy how technology allows people to pursue their interests. I know about several places around um, Bay Area where I live where people made a map with all the trees marked so that you can follow and you can identify all the trees. And it's it's a completely grassroots project. It wasn't, you know, nobody got Nobel Prize or, or lots of money for that. It was just something that people enjoyed doing and they made this map and uh, now it's available for everyone and you can find out what kind of tree that is. Exactly. Like even same with this park, somebody, it's called a tree library and some person <laughs> just started it because he was obsessed with this thing. And this sort of grassroots uh, bottom-up project is so interesting to me because this is how people engage with their environment and then make something from it to give to other people and allow them to also engage with it in easier ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's very interesting and I think maybe even learning learning the name of a tree should be like a, a third or fourth thing that, that you do before you you know, learn a little bit more about the plant. I knew that there, California is known for its oaks, and I knew that I have lots and lots of oaks growing around me. And I uh, just last year, maybe a year before, maybe it was during COVID, but I recently realized that the tree that I was trying to identify without using any technology, it was actually an oak, but its bark was completely unknown to me. And I thought it must be imported from some other country it couldn't be it just couldn't be an oak 
it, it doesn't have an oak leaves or anything. So, um, yeah. just just keeping that curiosity and being patient with your curiosity, I think, is also a very important thing. And drawing helps me with that because I use my the um, plant identification option on on my iPhone, where you take a picture and you just click on the i button and it tells you, well, this is it. But um, having patience while I draw and collect a little bit more information about that before I know the name and everything, it's uh, that's value of drawing something for me. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next one, I share the second half of my conversation with Nina. We talk about the war, its impact on her family. We speak about the helplessness of being thousands of miles away from the people we care for. Nina tells me about her renewed motivation to speak, read, and enjoy the Ukrainian language through music, books, and podcasts. We talk about some great books, some great art, and also how Nina came to urban sketching. If you enjoyed this episode, consider supporting this show by becoming a Sneaky Art Insider. I'm an independent podcaster and I rely on the generosity of super listeners and fans to give this project the time and attention it requires every week. If you love this show, help me keep making more episodes. Just for this summer, you can use the link in the episode description to get a special discount. Thank you for listening. I will see you in the next one.